0: And its title reminds us of the purpose of the book. The purpose is to reveal, not conceal. And it's namely to reveal how God rules all of history and will bring it to consumption, in in consummation, that is, in Jesus Christ. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Revelation is not a puzzle book to be figured out just by the experts, but Revelation is a picture book to be read And enjoyed. And it's particularly helpful in preparing God's children for living lives as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And like other children's books, it's highly repetitive. And it often repeats things seven times, not just because of its importance, but the number seven throughout scripture represents resting in God's completed work, right? The Sabbath day is a day of resting in God's completed work at creation. And so you have letters to seven churches showing the fullness of God's work to the churches. There are visions of the heavenly throne room, and then there's seven cycles of judgment, which demonstrate God's commitment to defeat evil and restore shalom or peace, making things right the way they were supposed to be. And so as you go through the seven cycles of judgment, you see first there's a, there's a cycle of judgment with the opening, the seven seals. Then second, there's the seven trumpets judgment. Third, there's the seven symbolic histories. Fourth, there's the seven bowls. Fifth, that we'll talk about tonight, is the judgment of Babylon. And this will be followed by the sixth judgment, the white horse judgment. And then the seventh, the white throne judgment. Okay, these cycles cover the time between Jesus' first coming at his incarnation and his second coming when he returns in glory. Each cycle of judgment reveals a different vantage point, with the later cycles of judgment focusing on the more intense phases of conflict between God's kingdom and the worldly kingdoms in rebellion to him. The first two cycles, the seven seals and seven trumpets, illustrate the commission for the war against God's enemy. The middle cycles, the seven symbolic histories and the seven bowls, describe the prosecution of that war. And then the later cycles, including tonight's passage, describes the victory of war as God's enemies are eliminated. And so we pick up tonight at the fifth cycle, showing the first victory in the war with the elimination of Babylon, that great seductress of the nations. Now, I warn you, this is a very long text. And it was chosen by the pastoral team, and with lots of different considerations being made in terms of timing and, you know, Advent coming up, so... Buckle up. (laughs) Open up your Bible, and we I may even talk a little more quickly than normal just to stay within our time limits here. But the majority of the text tonight focuses on the defeat of the prostitute and her lovers. But the picture is incomplete unless we also see the vindication and victory of the bride. And so those are the two, two sections. First, the defeat of the prostitute and her lovers through the seven cycles of judgment, and second, the victory of the bride, or Christ's church, who is called as the complete contrast to the prostitute. And like I said, most of my time is going to be on this uh, uh, first part of the seven cycles of judgment against Babylon. Okay? And in this judgment, there are, in this fifth judgment, right? it's like nesting dials, right? so we're looking at this dial of how Um, Babylon is judged and you open it up and there's seven dolls inside, seven judgments. There's three angelic messages of doom followed by three laments uh, of those who side with Babylon and then one command to rejoice at the prostitute's downfall. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. God, thanks so much for this time in your word. We pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, you would open our eyes to see the big picture. Help us not to miss the forest for the trees. And uh, we pray that you would greatly encourage us and equip us as your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I mentioned in my prayer, in, in order to see the forest and not just the trees, I'm going to read the entire passage. And since a picture is worth a thousand words, I will try to get out of the way and allow the picture to speak for itself as you gaze upon this beautiful masterpiece written by John at the revelation of the angel. I'm only going to pause briefly as we go through to point out details and subtle contrasts placed there uh, by the artist so that you may comprehend its its real beauty, its truth, and its goodness. So first, the prostitute and her lovers explained in seven cycles of judgment. Let's look at how the artist depicts the prostitute Babylon in the first six verses. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, with precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now, as a reminder, God's enemies that try to undermine God's people usually work in one of two ways, right? Either they work with a carrot or a stick. The beast represents the stick. Worldly power that represses and persecutes, using fear to silence God's people, using power to destroy their witness, all with the end goal of having the multitudes bow down to the beast. Now, the prostitute is the carrot, the fleshly powers that seduce, using sexual pleasure, worldly riches and comforts, all to destroy the purity of the saints and undermine the witness of the church. Now, observe in verse 2. The kings of the earth are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And in verse 4, we see that this prostitute, Babylon, is dressed in the latest fashions, in purple and scarlet. She is adorned with the wealth of the nations, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Now, in John's day, Babylon would symbolize the city of Rome with all of its immorality. The seven churches of Asia Minor face all types of immorality and idolatry in the first century uh, of Rome, economic and and social participation in city life involved participating in idolatrous feasts and pagan religious celebrations. Emperor worship was just expected as a sign of political allegiance. In fact, pagans wrongly accused Christians of being atheists because they would not worship the emperor. Now, some Christians, responding to the social and political pressures, yield it by participating in these idolatrous love feasts. Other Christians justified immorality by, by spinning the truth and synchronizing it with the, the pagan ideas of the day. In verse 5, we see the artist describe Babylon as the mother of prostitutes. In other words, she represents the fleshly lure of all worldly places That live in open rebellion to God. So what does this mean? Well, the city of Babylon, as well as the city of Rome, is not the only example of this prostitute. Our society can be just as seductive today as in Roman times and Babylonian times. Just turn on the radio or look at the news. Many want to convince us to compromise our Christian beliefs, to participate in society, whether that's in education or in finance or in social media. Advertisements are just trying to brainwash us to think that if only we have material wealth and sexual pleasure, we will be happy and content. Personal comfort is the highest goal. And we've even gone one step further. Now we teach that having others celebrate our lust is our right. Cultural gatekeepers demand that we have our feelings affirmed no matter how out of line they are with reality or with God's word. How does this apply? Don't miss the warning. It's common for religious people to feel shocked by by such behavior. But if we take Revelation 17 seriously, we should not be shocked by the persistent brazenness of this seductress's ways. It infects every city and town, large or small, red, blue, or purple. Nothing new is being described here. The shameless marketing of greed, materialism, and immorality is just par for the course in a fallen culture. The seductive one appeals to the darkest part of our nature, seeking to trap us and ruin us, And the children of God, we can't miss this warning. Beware of the prostitute Babylon. She lurks everywhere. See her for who she really is. She is not your friend. She is more deceitful than a juicy worm dangling on a deadly hook. Because she's a leech. Don't be like the ignorant doctors of the 18th century, who believe they could use leeches for relief and healing? This prostitute drains your life and quickens your death as she fattens herself, getting drunk on the blood of the saints. So, after presenting the prostitute in her deceptive and deadly glory, the angel gives three messages of doom. Like I said, this is where I'll spend most of my time, and actually I'll spend most of my time on the first message of doom in verses 7 through 18, where we learn more about the partnership of the prostitute and the beast between the carrot and the stick. Verse 7, Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw... Once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is... The other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is the eighth king. He belongs to the seventh and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. And they have one purpose. One purpose. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. And they will wage war against the lamb. But the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purposes by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Two brief comments. First, as I already mentioned, this initial message of doom focuses on the prostitute's relationship to the beast and how they partner to make war on the hearts of humanity. But notice the rhetorical question that John asks right away. Why are you astonished at this? In verse 3, we learn that the prostitute rides upon the beast, wielding its power. So what does this mean? As we've already said, we should not be surprised by Babylon's seductive ways. They are brazen from ancient times. But we also need to wise up to all the ways the beast and the prostitute cooperate. Because for the most part, the beast and the prostitute play on the same team. And a prudent person understands that worldly politics more often than not support her seductions. In other words, the beast gives the prostitute a free ride. Notice, however, that this fatal partnership of of worldly state politics and cultural idols, right? Notice this fatal partnership, uh, it waxes and wanes at various times in history. Look at verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. So what does this mean? In the long war between good and evil, those executing gross evil will come in and out of power. How do I mean? Vern Poythras says it this way. He says, as you go through Revelation, you see... That the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet form a counterfeit trinity. Right? The dragon is the counterfeit to the father, right, originating the plan. The beast is the counterfeit to the son, executing the plan. The false prophet is the counterfeit to the spirit, bearing witness to the plan, but through propaganda. And likewise, likewise the prostitute that we're talking about tonight is the counterfeit of the church, seducing people to give allegiance to the counterfeit Trinity. Now counterfeits, being what they are, cannot deliver what they promise. God alone can provide lasting blessings. Counterfeits can only pretend. They mimic and appropriate God's blessings. And the value counterfeit the, the value counterfeits offer is not only ultimately worthless, it is stolen and parasitic in nature. And therefore, counterfeit gods, aka idols, cannot endure, including idolatrous rulers and governments. Once the people discover the counterfeit, they reject it. Or you may say it this way, once the host's life is extinguished, the parasite dies and returns to the abyss. In the same way, once the beast's worldly political power has sucked life from the people, it returns to the abyss. Idols always have clay feet. True evil cannot long endure. It retreats and advances in cycles. And as verse 8 reminds us, when the beast returns from the abyss, it must find fresh meat. And it easily dupes fools whose names have not been written in the book of life. In other words, those who are ignorant of the covenant of grace, those who refuse the book of God and reject God's ways, they are easy prey for the beast and the prostitute. And they are useful idiots for the tyrannical beast and the leeching prostitute. So in summary, the beast and the prostitute cooperate most of the time to capture useful idiots who are easy prey. But let me make a second brief comment before we move on to the next angelic message. Notice the limitations of the partnership. Like every other ungodly partnership, it's not only a risky relationship, but it's doomed from the start. John illustrates the instability of the relationship between the beast and the prostitute with an image easily comprehended in his day. Let me explain. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, the angel tells us, that the seven heads of the beast are the seven hills of a city. Now, Rome was a hill, was a city with seven hills. And at the time John wrote, Rome was the starkest illustration of Babylon, the prostitute. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds. Theologians disagree who, over who the seven kings are. The five fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. They may be specific kings from history or just symbolic figures. Either way, here's the main point we cannot miss. The reader should understand the time of redemptive history in which they live. In other words, in this time of redemptive history, between Jesus' first coming at his incarnation and his second coming in glory, the church lives near the end, but not quite at the end. And so we can take comfort that despite appearances, despite how supportive political bodies may presently be of today's cultural idols, that relationship is doomed to fail. Here's the point. God's sovereignty is over all of history, even the most ungodly times and places. And it's demonstrated in the unstable, faithless relationship between the beast and the prostitute. Look at verses 12 through 16. We see where the beast and the prostitute are working together with ten kings. And we don't need to specifically identify each king to see the big picture, which is this that this dynamic at play is going beyond Rome. It is worldwide. The beast enlists many kings of other lands, earthly kings of limited power and influence, whose reign is short-lived, but they have a common goal to make war on the king of kings who reigns eternal. Now, here's the kicker. When all the forces of evil are aligned and walking in lockstep, at the moment of greatest darkness and despair, when all hope seems lost, it is right then that hope pierces through. When the victorious king of king shows up on the scene with his army and he's identified in verse 14, he triumphs over the beast in the most unexpected way, not with military might, but in meekness and sacrificial love. Notice verse 14, he triumphs as a lamb. The lamb will triumph because he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and with him will be his faithful followers. So how does this apply? Take heart, my brothers and sisters, never give up hope. Train your heart to recognize God's faithfulness. When all seems darkest, as it did at the cross and at the grave, God is simply teeing up the ball for a home run. For the lamb, along with his followers, will triumph over the beast. And notice how things go from bad to worse for the unholy marriage of the beast and the prostitute. They turn on each other, verse 15. Even while the prostitute still holds partial sway over the multitude, she's attacked by the beast and the kings. And in verse 16, in frustration, And vitriolic hate, the beast and the kings, burn the prostitute alive. Well, so much for that love affair. But this is good news. Take heart. Are you weary of the increased political acceptance of sexual immorality? Are the culture's idols of entitlement and self-worship and materialism wearing you down as you see those behaviors rewarded by new statutes in the law, new monetary policy, and even new rules by school administrators? Are you growing discouraged by the unholy union of our institutions, of media and education and government, and their apparent Solidarity at declaring the old good as the new evil and the old evil as the new good. If so, take heart. Verse 17 clarifies God's sovereignty over all kings, over the beast and over the prostitute. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish this for his purpose until God's words are fulfilled, whether it's the initial alliance of the beast and the prostitute or their ultimate turning on each other. So in summary for this very long first point, the first message of doom is that worldly state powers and cultural idols will cooperate together until they don't. And then in frustration, not in repentance, the worldly powers return on culture's idols and burn them alive. The second message of doom is in chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, and the third message of doom in verses 4 through 18, I'll read with little comment as it's self-explanatory. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illumined by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fall in, fall in is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The angel's second message of doom announces this fall of Babylon and its utter destruction. In other words, no remnant is is left. Her Her guilt is total, her judgment is final, her destruction is complete. And then the third message of doom starts in verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as king. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. The angel's third message of doom is a voice from heaven commanding God's people to to come out of Babylon so that they do not share in her sins. God's people are to separate from Babylon by maintaining their their purity. And also, since Babylon's sins are piled up to heaven, God's people are to judge her righteously. Look at verse 7. Give back to her double portion for what she has done. They are to be active, not passive, in their pursuit of justice against, wic- against the wickedness of Babylon. Now, after the three messages of doom, there are three voices from heaven that, that describe laments. And these are the laments of those observing the fall of Babylon and grieving the loss of her. And the laments are listed in a threefold woe, starting in verse 9 of chapter 18. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see smoke, the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargos anymore. Cargos of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargos of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and human beings sold as slaves. They will say the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendors have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry aloud, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the seas became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin." All the companions of Babylon, the kings, the merchants, the sailors, all those who've admired her beauty and profited from her ways are terrified as they watch her destruction. But notice, even though they are fearful of their own destruction, they do not repent. Instead, they weep over Babylon's judgment. Vern Porthrees said it this way. He said, like Lot's, Like Lot's wife, who looked back longingly at Sodom and Gomorrah, they grieve Babylon's fall. How does this apply? Don't confuse worldly sorrow with true repentance. Not all tears are godly. Sinners who weep over the consequence of their sins, whether it's a loss of comfort or status, May still have hardened hearts that refuse to repent. Like an addict who knows that they're sinning and understands the destruction that follows but cannot bear to part with their addiction, these hardened sinners refuse to give up their sinful pleasures and idols. Their tears reflect a sinful self pity. So let me ask you why do you weep over your sin? Is it because of the consequences that you're experiencing are hard or because your sin is an affront to a holy God and it breaks relationship with him? Some tears are just further proof of a hardened heart. They're they're simply complaints, a temper tantrum, that your idols are no longer working, that that the God substitutes that you, you commit adultery with, that you cheat on God with, Your personal Babylon prostitutes are not able to comfort you any longer. But God sees through all tears, and he knows if they spring from a repentant heart, sorry for offending a holy God and those made in his image, or from a hardened heart that's just filled with self-pity and sorrow for having to deal with just consequences. Real repentance cares less about consequences and more about the glory of God. It cares less about losing comfort, but yearns deeply for God to make things right. And that leads to the final commandment. Three messages of doom, three laments of the ungodly, and finally one command for God's people. Look at verses 20 to 24 in chapter 18. Rejoice over her, you heavens. "'Rejoice, you people of God. "'Rejoice, apostles and prophets, "'for God has judged her "'with the judgment she has imposed on you.' "'Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder "'the size of a large millstone "'and threw it into the sea and said, "'With such violence, the great city of Babylon "'will be thrown down, never to be found again. "'The music of harpists and musicians, "'pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. "'No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again.' The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people, and by your magic spell all nations were led astray. But in her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, of all who've been slaughtered on the earth. So God's people are commanded to rejoice at the fall of Babylon because justice has finally come. And the reason for her condemnation was given there at the end in verse 24. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. And therefore her judgment, her judgment brings freedom, freedom for God's people. Since her destruction is total and complete, she cannot seduce God's people again. And so we celebrate, and this celebration is for no temporary victory. The mother of all fleshly seduction has permanently been thrown down. It says, like a large millstone cast into the sea, she has no chance of ever coming back to deceive and entrap the nations again. They are eternally free from her magic spell. What good news. So there you have it, the defeat of the prostitute and her lovers through seven cycles of judgment, three messages of doom, three laments of those who side with her, and one command to rejoice for God's people. Now lastly, the destruction of the prostitute of Babylon is contrasted with the victory of the bride of the church, the bride of Christ, which is the church, excuse me. In chapter 19, look at verse 1. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice from the throne came saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. For the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And at this, I fell down and worshipped him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Here, finally, we we get to behold supreme beauty, true beauty, the bride of Christ, made holy by her her loving and faithful groom. And unlike the prostitute, this beautiful one has been fashioned for perfect faithfulness. Her love is pure and life-giving. And as the Apostle John gazes upon this radiant bride, the glory emanating from her seems to overwhelm him. Enthralled by this bride of Christ, enthralled by this great multitude delighting intimately in God, and intoxicated by the angel's declaration of blessing for those invited to the the Lamb's wedding supper, John mistakenly bows down to worship the messenger. What does this mean? the radiance of this beautiful bride, God's people delighting with God, being present with God, is so overwhelming. In other words, as, as this bride delights in and reflects the glory of God, John feels compelled to worship her even though he shouldn't. Now, it seems like an honest mistake. For instead of being struck down dead for false worship, the angel merely rebukes him and says, don't do that. Don't do that. And reminds him that he's just a fellow servant who, like his brothers and sisters, should hold to the testimony of God. I know we're running a little short on time, so I want to skip to one last application. How does all this last point apply? We need to learn to view everything in light of eternity. As we consider the fading glory of Babylon and compare it to the rising glory of this supreme beauty of the Bride of Christ, we must learn to view everything in light of eternity. Those seduced by the prostitute will suffer a final divorce from God, longing for their adulterous lovers and cheating on God with them, even though they know that brings nothing but death and destruction, they will cling to this prostitute, Until they lose their humanity and their bitter end becomes like that of an addict, and it will yield a living hell that can become an eternal hell. But those who hold to the testimony of God, who say, Yes, I do, who enter into a forever relationship with Him, one that is faithful and true, They will receive such honor and glory as they delight in and worship God that mortal creatures like John will be tempted to worship them. That's how much they'll radiate and reflect the glory of God, that mere mortals will be tempted to worship them. C.S. Lewis captured it best in his famous collection of sermons called The Weight of Glory. And he writes this, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninterested person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other destination. And it is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, all play and politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Brothers and sisters, you have a vision for that. As you look at your children, parents, remember my Young Life leader giving me this vision of just holding a crown over his son's head. Saying, if I put this crown on his head it go over his whole body. But the vision is someday he's going to grow into it. He's going to be worthy of it. Brothers and sisters, that's the vision. That's the call we have in each other's lives, to grow into our crowns for the glory of God. Amen. So in summary, the revelation of God could not be starker. All those who cheat on God who are seduced by the prostitute will suffer seven cycles of judgment. Their comforts will be short-lived, their addictions will turn life into a living hell that apart from true repentance will lead to eternal hell. But those who enter into a forever relationship with God, who say yes and enter into his covenant with the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ, they will radiate true beauty and everlasting life to such an extent that mere mortals will be tempted to worship them. I don't know where you are tonight, whether you're a believer or not, but if you are not a believer, will you at least entertain an invitation to turn from all other lovers and come to Christ? If that's something you would even entertain or want to talk about, please come talk to me or someone else who brought you to church or someone else who's a member here. We would love to see you delight in the only one that can satisfy you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word, a lot to get through, but we thank you. It is your revelation to us, and it is sweet, and it is good, and it is powerful. We pray that you would help us to, to make sense of it, not just intellectually, but that it would transform our hearts and give us a greater hope in you, despite the brokenness in our culture, a greater vision for the opportunity we have to pour into each other's lives, the Westminster Pulpit.